Good evening. Um, now that everyone's here, let's start an evening of debate at LSE on the subject of unilaterally appointed arbitrators. But before I give the word to our chair and moderator and referee for tonight's debate, um, first of all, let me welcome you at LSE. Um, this is the fourth event this year of the Transnational Law Project. The Transnational Law Project was created two years ago to really bring together the, on the one hand, the academics at LSE, working with all types of legal questions related to the creation of norms outside of the state. And of course, arbitration is one of the main places of this happening. Um, about, no, exactly a year ago, today a year ago, Jan Poulsen gave his inaugural lecture as Centennial Professor at LSE. And since we have been able to organize a couple of events with them, some without him, and um, I do encourage you to go on our website and have a look at what there is. First of all, you find Jan Poulsen's lecture online on video. Um, by the way, this evening's debate will also be recorded. Um, and. Um, you will see some of the LSE publications of the past events and hopefully soon more information about the events to come in next term. Um, let me just very briefly introduce the speakers to you as if it were necessary, but we will have Stephen Yagos from Alan Overy uh, moderating this evening. Stephen um, is well known in London and has been working with both of these gentlemen in a number of arbitrations. Um, First, the outside guest, Mr. Alexis Moore from Moore Castaldi, Castaldi Moore, sorry, in Paris. Um, one of the leading specialists in France, one of the most important writers on the most debated issues and known to have strong opinions, and this is great for a debate. So as to take on tonight, Jan Poulsen, our centennial professor, but of course also co-head of the arbitration practice group of Freshfields, and um, I'll leave it right there because more introductions are necessary. So, please, Stephen. Thank you, Jan. That's a great pleasure to moderate this uh, interesting debate. I was told that I was plainly given the adult's table, although sitting at it, I feel quite the child. Um, uh, why is this an important topic? Why should we be listening to these esteemed uh, experts on it? Um, well, because, firstly, it's an important topic because it is one it pertains to an idea that has been conceived and promoted by none other than Jan Paulsen. It must therefore be important. And we have him here to defend his views. But like so many of Jan's ideas, uh, they get our community of arbitration specialists thinking. Uh, Jan was the, uh, uh, Jan's first client, in fact, uh, was, this is when Jan was uh, first a lawyer, his first client was SPP, the first ever claimant to initiate an exit case against the state. And in many ways, that was the beginning of treaty arbitration as we know it today. He got us thinking. Uh, many of you will be familiar with his article, Ethics, Elitism and El Eligibility, an article which also provoked much debate. There may be overtones of that in tonight's discussion, and if there aren't, I shall try to draw them out. His and Georgios Petroklos's work um, overcame massive inertia. 
uh, and demonstrated that the UNSATRAL 1976 rules required revision. Again, Jan giving us lots of food for thought. But this point as to the unilateral appointment of arbitrators really goes to the very heart of international arbitration. We should pause and reflect on the fact that uh, as practitioners, it's very easy, us, easy for us to take mantra for granted. One such example is that confidentiality is to be implied into arbitration agreements. When, of course, upon thoughtful reflection, as is now starting to happen in a number of jurisdictions, that is shown to be a myth. And so tonight, we direct thoughtful examination to another mantra, whether it is a fundamental right to appoint one's own arbitrator. Jan will debate that it is not. But more than that, he will debate that it can be harmful to international arbitration and that there are better alternatives. Challenging Jan's suggestions is Alexei Moore, himself a highly distinguished and experienced arbitration specialist. He has been an arbitrator in nearly a hundred arbitrations of all shapes and sizes. So he's very well qualified to speak on this topic. He's vice president of the ICC court and senior vice chair of the uh, IBA arbitration committee. Uh, Alexei told me earlier today, when we happened to be deliberating uh, in connection with the case where we were appointed by the parties, uh, that he feels like the chicken having agreed to a debate with the fox by taking on Jan tonight. Knowing Alexei as I do, uh, this is truly a fox versus fox debate <laughs> that we should enjoy. Um, <clears throat> I've had the pleasure of working with Alexei also in a number of very uh, uh, important committees uh, and working with him as an arbitrator. He is indisputably one of the finest minds in the business. So against that introduction, uh, may I turn the floor to Jan, who will put forward for us his ideas. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Alexei Moore is a friend of mine, usually. Not tonight. Tonight he is a learned friend of mine, and you know what that means? No prisoners. You heard it again. The fundal, fundamental right to name one's arbitrator. Well, it isn't a right, I say, and if it were a right, it wouldn't be fundamental. Indeed, it is antithetical to the fundamental basis of arbitration. It is antithetical to the fundamental idea of arbitration. Let's establish what the fundamental idea of arbitration is. It is to have such confidence in a person or persons that you yield to him or her or them, the authority to make a final decision on your dispute, with the serenity from your acceptance in their authority that you will therefore accept whatever they decide in your favor or against. Who are you less willing to give that authority to than the person selected by your opponent whose entire purpose in life at this moment is to cause you to lose your case? There is nobody you want less to decide your dispute than that person. That is why the idea of a unilaterally appointed arbitrator is fundamentally antithetical to arbitration. Now my learned friend, who is a sweet talker, erudite and eloquent, will give you lots of secondary reasons for why this makes sense nonetheless. But nonetheless, remember, 
There is nothing he can say about the proposition I have just advanced. And everything you hear will be amoral justifications for a lamentable expedient which we would do well to jettison if arbitration is going to endure. I understand from people who knew me then that I was a very annoying child. I don't know if it was true. I'd like to think it wasn't. Uh, somebody who was continually insisting on telling people things they didn't want to hear and repeating questions that they really didn't want to answer. I must confess that talking about unilateral appointment of arbitrators to some extent corroborates this idea that I was an annoying child because it seems I cannot, I must confess that I, I seem to get some satisfaction from annoying people now, even at this advanced age, so maybe it's all true. People seem to be very annoyed when I say that the practice of unilateral appointment of arbitrators should be uh, abandoned. Uh, last week in Hong Kong, uh, I was sitting in the audience, not up on the panel, but there was a panel of very eminent people, including four judges, including Lord Hoffman, uh, who discussed a number of things, and one of the things came up was my idea that we should jettison the appointment of unilateral uh, arbitrators. And there was unanimity, as usual, unanimity against my idea. And it was um, extremely pleasant for me to listen to this, because in order to achieve unanimity against my idea, they were forced to traduce it. They were forced to put it exactly the opposite way to the way I had said. It was said, for example, that it would be a violation of the fundamental philosophy to deprive the parties of the right to appoint their arbitrators. Well, when did I say that? Is there one of the five syllables of unilateral that I don't pronounce adequately? If parties together jointly appoint a tribunal, there cannot be anything better. And whatever they wish to do, I'm a believer in freedom. Do they want to toss a coin? If they are adults, let them do so. If they want to agree that each side may appoint whomever they wish without the possibility of challenge, well, let's be clear, let's not be hypocritical, and let them say that. I can appoint my own lawyer. I can appoint my own mother, which means that my opponent can appoint my mother-in-law. <laughs> no objection possible, and that is just fine. But those who think about arbitration and want it to endure as an institution should not propose such things as the rule. Now, where I begin is to think that at the heart of the problem is a distressing thought that just won't go away. Is it not rather obvious that the right to name one's arbitrator has more to do with a hope that the nominee will share one's own prejudices rather than that that nominee will share both sides' values? Now, how can that possibly be squared with the legitimacy of arbitration unless we throw up our hands and state once and for all that the only arbitrator is the one in the middle. I began to think these 
annoying thoughts. Observing practice in the London Court of International Arbitration, where I worked for seven years and had a lot of occasions to see what happened in cases under the LCA rules, which have the peculiarity that under the LCA rules, unlike others, the default position is that the parties do not appoint arbitrators unilaterally. The default position, number one, is that there is a sole arbitrator. The default position, number two, parties can agree to the contrary, they can say three. The default position, number two, is that there will be three if the parties so agree. But if they don't say anything else, the default position is that the three are named by the institution. Only if they stipulate something else uh, will that default position be overcome. So, in the LCIA, one has two types of three-member tribunals, all named by the institution and ones with co-arbitrators named by the parties. And I observed something interesting. This is anecdotal. Uh, I heard the staff of the LCIA remarking on certain cases. Uh, some of them are here this evening. The LCIA staff is very proud of the work that's done there, and they take pride in everybody's contribution, including the arbitrators. So I would hear expressions of satisfaction about a case that came in on time, on budget, no requests for replenishment, and the award is very coherent. shows no signs of weird compromises that um, sort of destroy the logical coherence of the award. And it must have happened one day when it's all started when I say, hmm, was that one of the tribunals where we appointed all three? And the answer was yes. And that got me thinking. And that got me into the habit of always asking when I observed nice arbitrations ending that this seemed to have some kind of a concordance with the absence of unilaterally appointed arbitrators. Mm. I'm proposing that my anecdotal observations uh, be studied empirically so that a significant number of cases, I hope it can be done, will be studied for objective features of the difference between the two types of arbitration and perhaps also subjective ones, very difficult to do, interviewing the parties afterwards and getting their honest uh, um, answers, but perhaps if the questions are objective enough, something significant come out. This is a frustrating thing about arbitration, is how little we know of it that can, that can be quantified in such a way as to make serious judgments. But this is something that we're working on, and I uh, hope that it can be a success. Something else to the advantage of tribunals which do not include unilaterally appointed arbitrators. The selection Sorry, the intelligent composition of the tribunal. Some tribunals call out for persons of different types of expertise. Don't jump at me right away and say, oh yes, that's precisely why you have party-appointed arbitrators unilaterally. Uh, when parties appoint an expert in a particular field in an arbitration, it's not really because that is going to be the true and sure way to truth. That is because their feeling is that emphasis on that particular specialism suits their one single objective, which is to win. 
objectively a dispute looked at in the round, looking at the arguments of both parties, may require different types of specialisms. And if the parties are not interjecting their own specialist in a favored area of particular expertise, which they want to be majored upon in the arbitration, that is something that the institution can do intelligently without worrying that somebody who is not a lawyer will be left behind by a majority of the others. Something else in the composition of tribunals. How often have you heard in the field of international arbitration that there is a problem of giving people from countries which are not in the mainstream of arbitration a chance to prove themselves? It's a chicken and the egg. You give them a chance to prove themselves, but how do you justify, you want to do that, but how do you justify giving themselves a chance in an actual case where there are stakes which are very important to the parties? How do you justify giving an inexperienced arbitrator the presidency of a tribunal? Not so difficult to give an inexperienced person a chance as a co-arbitrator sitting with two other experienced arbitrators, one in the chair, all appointed by the institution. That new arbitrator works with experienced arbitrators, shows his or her mettle, garners the experience observing others in practice, showing what he or she can do. It's something that can be done in this way, and I don't know how that can be done in the other formation. Where did this start, the business of unilateral appointment of arbitrators? It started out in a wild and wicked field of international law, which is that of public international law. States have a habit of resolving their disputes by killing the young people of their neighbors. It's a wild field. So the alternative to war is international dispute res resolution of a Pacific kind. But we're starting from fairly proud and belligerent parties. And therefore, the idea of international arbitration, which was big in the 19th century. There were lots of international arbitrations in the 19th century, but most of them were interstate. And states giving up their usual way of settling disputes were very, very hesitant to do so and would do so only against the expedient of being able to appoint their arbitrator. That was a selling point, not a point of principle, not the ideal. The contrary of the principle and the ideal, a compromise. And states did so, and states did so in very disreputable ways. You can study the history of it and see that even relatively friendly countries uh, behaved in atrocious fashion in terms of abusing the right to appoint arbitrators who were not only partisan from the beginning, but throughout the arbitration acted as agents of their respective governments. In uh, a lecture I gave last year, uh, which was a full-length lecture, I particularly analyzed the, the Alaska boundary arbitration, which took place in the early uh, 20th century, 1904, uh, where uh, the Teddy Roosevelt uh, named uh, three arbitrators to a six-member tribunal. How about that? Six-member tribunal, uh, where uh, uh, two of the arbitrator 
This is the, the Alaska boundary. Uh, one was a senator from Washington with a very keen interest uh, in where the boundary lay. Um, the second one was Henry Cabot Lodge. Some of you may recognize that name. Uh, rabid Anglophone, as described by his biographer. Uh, and uh, Elihu Root, a very distinguished Secretary of War and then Secretary of State who won the Nobel Prize for Peace for his work in the field of international arbitration. But he, throughout his uh, tenure as arbitrator in that case, had to put up with a steady barrage of letters from Teddy Roosevelt telling him what points he could couldn't concede and what points he had to maintain. Uh, at the end of that case, which was, of course, between the United States and the United and Great Britain, it's U.S.-Canada, but it's notionally at the time the U.S. and the U.K., uh, Great Britain had three Brits, two from England and one from Canada. And one of the Brits went with the Americans, so it was 4-2, uh, and that was a decision which has rankled, and I cannot uh, tell you uh, uh, the adjectives that came out of the Prime Minister of Canada after that decision. Treason was sort of the starting uh, 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 temperature uh, of that particular broth uh, when the decision came down. Well, that was, be that was the behavior between two relatively friendly states. Uh, Elihu Root was, in, was 58 uh, in 1904. Uh, as a much older man in 1920, having won the Nobel Prize for Peace, having been a passionate advocate for international arbitration, having seen his ideas about the Pacific resolution of this, this dispute dashed in the most uh, sanguinary war of history, World War I, then, after the Treaty of Versailles, was asked to become part of a small group of people who drafted the statute of the Permanent Court of Arbitration, the first world court. He wrote, as he steamed off to Europe, one thing we have to see to it, and I think he was remembering something, one thing we have to ensure is that the judges on this world court will be selected for their competence and their, for their neutrality, not because they are appointed by the states who wish to see success in the adjudications of the Permanent Court of International Justice. That was his idea, and that was shot down by the states in a compromise, once again, insisting on the right to name their judge onto the Permanent Court of International Arbitration. Uh, this lives on in the, um, uh, in the ICJ today. Of course, all the judges are elected, and, and the process of elections in the United Nations uh, is very interesting in and of itself. But you have the, the uh, um, uh, office of the ad hoc judges which are unilaterally nominated by the two disputants if it so happens that they don't already have somebody of their nationality sitting on the ICJ. So that's public international law. In the United States, there's also something called labor arbitration, employment arbitration, which is very different in the United States from elsewhere. Uh, because in most, in most countries of Europe, employment arbitration simply cannot be arbitrated. It is thought contrary to public policy to allow such disputes to be arbitrated because arbitration is a private agreement, and private agreement um, contain the possible seeds of oppression by the more powerful party, the employer. Hence, uh, it is fairly typical that employment, ar uh, employment disputes cannot be arbitrated in civil law countries. In the United States, it's the contrary. Uh, this, the AAA statistics is that there are several hundred thousand arbitrations per year in the United States. But these are actually the function of American legislation 
which engenders collective bargaining agreements, which in turn engender labor arbitrations, which pit the union representing, obligatorily representing the employer against management. Uh, those arbitrations replace strikes. That's the history of it. They are the quid pro quo from giving up the right to strike under the collective bargaining agreement, and hence, inherently, those arbitrations have an element of negotiation. That explains why the, prog the, the, the attitudes in those who are steeped in labor arbitration of the American type, and the quantity is huge, where arbitrators have a track record. Management keeps tabs of every arbitrator. How many decisions they have, they have they decided in favor of the employee and how many in favor of the employer? Or those who come from the field of international law have very, very particular ideas about the indispensability of unilaterally named arbitrators. So, you will have understood that my proposal is not in the nature of forbidding people from what they want to do. This has nothing to do with the essential freedom of parties to name arbitral tribunals. Parties, plural, that's the most wonderful thing that can happen. They agree on the tribunal in its entirety. If parties wish to have unilaterally appointed arbitrators, let them do so. But let us end the hypocrisy. Let's call it what it is. And let us not encourage it institutionally. If parties wish to do so, let them so stipulate. But let us, in arbitral institutions in the world, move away from encouragement of unilateral appointments. Let us move away from default rules, where unilateral appointment is the norm, and work toward the true idea of arbitration, when both litigants can have equal confidence in each member of the tribunal. Well, yeah, and that was as thought-provoking and, and entertaining as ever. I, um, <clears throat> I'm interested to conduct my own research in order to ascertain when mother-in-law jokes first entered your uh, armory of humour. <laughs> I suspect relatively recently, but we, we, shall, uh, we shall consider that further. Um, thank you, Jan, for that uh, uh, presentation of your thesis. Uh, we now turn to Alexei to respond. Alexei. Thank you, Stephen. Well, first of all, thanks to uh, the LEC for organizing this debate, and it's really uh, an honor and a challenge to be uh, debating with Jan today. Uh, I don't know whether in capacity of chicken or fox, uh, we will see, but uh, it is an honor, and, and thank you. Uh, well, I, I, I've, I have listened very carefully uh, Jan Paulson's case, and I think he talked a lot about very interesting uh, questions, the Alaskan boundary case, 1904, uh, U.S. labor law arbitration. It talked very little about what we are interested into today, and that is international commercial arbitration, and that is what I would like to talk about. The other observation I would like to make as an introduction is that uh, Jan seems to have uh, um, backstaged quite a bit from uh, uh, his uh, Miami lecture on this topic. Uh, his lecture uh, proposed to forbid, or at least rigorously police, the practice of unilateral appointments. 
Uh, today, Jan made the case that uh, parties should be free to make uh, so-called unilateral appointments, uh, but that the practice should not be encouraged. And that is quite, I think, a different, uh, uh, or at least a more nuanced position. Now, I would like to make two introductory uh, comments, first of all. Uh, the first is that I believe that there is no such thing as unilateral appointments. Uh, appointments uh, may be made uh, by a party, but the constitution of the tribunal is always a collective process. And the French Supreme Court uh, has made that point uh, very clearly, and the case law in France is uh, absolutely consistent. Uh, the French Supreme Court says the appointment of, of each arbitrator is not a unilateral act, even when initiated by one party alone. On the contrary, this appointment, which forms an important part of the arbitration agreement, results from the common intention of uh, the parties. And so uh, the overwhelming practice is each party, in fact, appoints it, its arbitrator. That is true, but it is subject to strict duties of disclosure, and it is uh, subject to the other party's right to challenge. So my first point is that uh, appointment constitutional tribunal uh, is not uh, the addition of uh, unilateral appointments, uh, but it is a truly collective process. The other point is that, and I think we will agree on this, there is no such thing as a fundamental right to appoint arbitrators. The only fundamental rights that exist is uh, the right to participate equally in the Constitution of the Tribunal, and you know uh, the French case law in uh, Dutko. Whether parties uh, uh, should be entitled to appoint arbitrators is a matter of contract, a matter of the institution rule, a matter of the uh, applicable national law, but there is no uh, uh, fundamental principle to do so. And I agree on many other uh, propositions that have been made by yeah, and I agree that uh, institutional appointments may be better than unilateral appointments. Uh, institutions may be able to constitute uh, clever tribunals by, for example, uh, having uh, an accountant, an auditor in the panel, having a professor, having uh, uh, compositions which you may not find with uh, uh, unilateral or so-called unilateral appointments. But that is not the point. The point we are discussing today is whether uh, unilateral appointments should be banned or at least rigorously policed, and I think they should not. Now, I will address briefly three points. First of all, uh, the advantages of uh, uh, the so-called unilaterally uh, made appointments. Uh, second, the perceived disadvantages of uh, such appointments, and then uh, the long-term consequences of uh, Jan's propositions. First of all, advantages of uh, party appointments. I think there are four at least. First of all, unilateral appointments contribute to the acceptance of the arbitration system by the users. I think if you uh, have uh, read the recent survey made by uh, uh, the Queen Mary School of Arbitration with White and Case, uh, it is quite interesting to see that uh, amongst uh, the, the reasons why users uh, choose an institution comes uh, with 38% free choice of arbitrators, uh, i.e. no exclusive institutional list. And corporate councils go on uh, stating their preference for greater autonomy in the selection of arbitrators and the desirability of being able to appoint one of the three arbitrators is another factor which is frequently cited by respondents. 
Uh, and if you look at the, uh, Yan talked about the LCIA, uh, if you look at the LCIA statistics, you will see that uh, in more than 50% of cases, I think, uh, the, uh, the parties agree to appoint uh, uh, arbitrators in uh, the panel, and that is in uh, variation of, uh, of, the, uh, of the institutional rules. Look at the ICC. In the ICC, and the, 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 the figures are in the uh, annual reports of the ICC, in uh, at least uh, uh, more than 55% of the case, I think 58%, I think the figure is, uh, uh, the parties agree to appoint the chair, to, to have the chairman appointed by the co arbitrators or to appoint directly uh, the chairman of the arbitral tribunal. And this again is a variation from the rule, which, as you know, provide uh, in default for uh, appointment of the chairman by, uh, by, by the court. So it, it is quite clear that they, there is a strong expectation by users, which of course is not the reason as such uh, uh, for making that, for admitting that practice, but there is a strong expectation by users uh, for uh, having that uh, possibility to appoint uh, uh, their, quote uh, unquote, arbitrator. Uh, I do not believe, I do not believe that, well, the first point maybe is, uh, uh, is it would, it, would it be right to, at the moment when from, we see from corporate counsel, I see quite strong criticism to arbitration in terms of cost and delay. Uh, do we want to add that uh, in addition to the criticism? I think uh, that would be a very bad point that would contribute to uh, distance uh, the users from the system. But I do not agree with what Jan said, uh, that uh, the parties expect uh, uh, that their uh, party appointed arbitrator would favor their view and that would be the reason why uh, why uh, uh, parties uh, are uh, uh, quite willing to, uh, to have that practice uh, maintained. I think the reason why the parties and corporate councils and companies and the use of arbitration uh, want to be able to appoint the arbitrator is because this gives them a sense uh, of participation to the process. Uh, they give them the sense that they are part and parcel to the process. They uh, uh, give them the sense that they retain some level of control on the arbitration. And for the reason I just expressed, I think that is good for arbitration. I see the worst thing that can happen to arbitration today is more distance between the users, between companies, and the arbitration system. Now, second reason, uh, party uh, uh, appointments ensure uh, diversity in the population of the available uh, experienced arbitrators. And here again, I disagree with uh, Jan. I think that uh, the, the pool of available experienced arbitrators is wider and more diverse uh, if it is the product of appointments freely made uh, by thousands and thousands of parties of different uh, around the world, uh, uh, rather than by a limited uh, number of uh, institutions. I think uh, uh, one example is the Court of Arbitration for Sports uh, list of arbitrators, uh, which is an example that Jan made in his paper. Look at the list of arbitrators of the Court of Arbitration for Sports. Uh, uh, you will find uh, many people, uh, many good people. For France, you find Jan Paulsen. But Jan Paulsen and Brigitte Stern are the only two names I know in the list, 19%. All, of, all the other uh, uh, arbitrators on the list are strangers to me. Uh, look at Germany. Klaus Sachs, for example, is not in there. Look at Great Britain. Johnny Vitter, Toby Lando, uh, Julian Liu are not in there, etc., etc. So I think that is a good example of how defective 
uh, institutional uh, uh, list of uh, arbitrators can be. Third reasons, the third reason is that party appointments allow institutions to compete uh, uh, against one uh, another uh, freely by offering different options. The arbitration market is a free market. The arbitration market is a market where institutions compete and institutions offer different products. Uh, you have institutions which offer uh, parties full control on the uh, constitution of the tribunal. You have institutions which, uh, like the LCIA, provide for appointments of uh, all the arbitrators. And you have institutions which have uh, least procedures, like the NIA. Uh, NAI. Uh, you have institutions which are midway, like the ICC, where the parties appoint their co-arbitrators, and the court, the institution, will appoint the chairman. And that is good. That is good. You have different products. You have institutions competing on the basis of different products, and having uh, the sort of ban that Yan is proposing would be, I think, uh, extremely, extremely negative. Fourth reason, uh, I think that the practice of party of party appointments improves the process of constitution of the arbitral tribunal. Uh, the appointment of the chair is the single most, uh, I think, probably important step in an arbitration. And I think that having uh, the, the appointment of the chair made by the co-arbitrator, like it is done most of the time in practice, in cooperation with the parties, is uh, by far uh, preferable uh, to uh, an institutional uh, appointment. Uh, you, you know that uh, uh, the practice of arbitration and rules of ethics uh, permit uh, uh, party-appointed arbitrators to have ex-party contacts with their appointing party uh, only as far as the constitution of the tribunal is concerned. And uh, in practice, uh, 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 party-appointed arbitrators devote, devote a lot of time and attention to the appointment of uh, the chair in a way that I think uh, uh, ensures that the appointment is more consensual uh, and uh, better takes into account uh, uh, all the interests involved. And I believe that this uh, could not be the case with uh, institutional appointments. Now, the perceived disadvantages of unilateral appointments. Jan makes quite a strong case in his Miami lecture. He says, the practice of unilateral appointments militates against coherently and sincerely motivated awards. And why is that? Because uh, the arbitral tribunal may compromise uh, on uh, the outcome of the arbitration in order to reach an unanimous uh, result, and also become the suggestion is made, he did not express it uh, today, but it is made in his lecture, uh, the suggestion is made that arbitrators might enter into a sort of uh, uh, you scratch my back and I scratch your back deal uh, uh, in order to sell one arbitration against the other, which is something I've uh, personally never seen happening. But it is true that in some occurrence uh, you have uh, situations where uh, a chairman might want to reach unanimity and might uh, want to compromise on some issues. Normally such compromise occurs on trust. Uh, I, I don't see that happening on, on the merits and that would be uh, highly improper. But the most general uh, observation I would like to make is the following. If the situation were as Yen described it, the system would be broke. It would be so improper, so incompatible with fair justice that arbitration would not be able to work at all. But then, how is it that arbitration has had the incredible success and increasing success that it has had in past decades? I believe that Jan's demonstration is essentially based on anecdotal 
evidence. But I do not believe that the case is made. I believe that quite to the contrary, party appointed arbitrator be, uh, behave in a, an impartial manner most of the time in the overwhelming majority of cases uh, in a deliberation, you almost have difficulties in identifying, identifying who has been appointed uh, by whom. But the question is, would the situation be significantly improved if uh, you would have a rule uh, 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 generalizing or imposing uh, uh, institutional appointments, for example? Well, I think you have an example, and that is the example of uh, the recent uh, uh, record of decision by exit uh, ad hoc committees. I do not believe that recent, the recent record of uh, uh, certain exit ad hoc committees, uh, whose members are all appointed by the institution, uh, as we know, uh, uh, really make the, makes the case that uh, uh, awards made by uh, arbitrators appointed by the institution are uh, more coherent or more sincere than awards made by uh, exit tribunals appointed by, by the parties. Now, the last argument which is made by, by Jan is, and then I will conclude, is that of dissenting opinions. Uh, Jan said, well, look, uh, look at the statistics. By the way, we don't have statistics, but the fact is that dissenting opinions, opinions are most of the time, uh, if not almost always, made by uh, the arbitrator appointed by the losing party. Is that not very strong evidence that uh, those arbitrators are biased? Well, I would say uh, three things uh, on this. First of all, uh, not all dissents are ugly. Uh, to use the words of Alan Rector, you have the ugly, you have the bad, but you have also the good. And second, uh, uh, dissenting opinions are a limited phenomenon in international commercial arbitration. Uh, we don't set statistics, but we see what happens, for example, in the ICC. We are both vice presidents of the ICC Court of Arbitration, and the number of awards where there is a dissent is limited. Now, to conclude, I think I have two minutes, Stephen? Yes, you have two minutes. Just two minutes. Um, to conclude, I would say two things. Uh, I, I believe that uh, the problem which is raised by Jan of partisan arbitrators uh, is uh, a survivance of uh, progressively uh, uh, disappearing all misconceptions. We see that disappearing. I believe that we see that less and less. It is not a, systemi a systemic problem that would deserve, that would deserve uh, sweeping uh, uh, changes uh, like the one uh, that Jan is uh, proposing. I think, I believe that uh, corporate councils, the parties are more and more aware nowadays that hiring uh, 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 partisan arbitrators that hard guns uh, do more harm than good to their cases. I think that users of arbitration are more and more uh, conscious of the fact that the most efficient uh, appointment for their case is the appointment of uh, an impartial arbitrator that would behave properly. And I believe that in order to have those uh, remnants, uh, those remainings of all misconceptions disappear, I think it is a matter of education. I think it is for institutions such as ICA. Uh, uh, which Jan, Jan is the chairman of ICA, uh, like the IBA, uh, uh, to educate uh, the parties uh, to uh, what arbitration is and to uh, move forward in the way which I think is a positive way which we see today. Uh, the proposition of a ban uh, uh, would amount, in my view, to some sort of, of strange uh, arbitral socialism uh, where uh, you would reach an ideal allocation of human resources uh, uh, in a regulated arbitral economy. 
I do not believe in that. I believe in two free markets. I think that free markets work better. And I think we said in France in 1968, I think arbitration is a place of freedom. And in arbitration, it should be and the consequences do not ban unilateral appointments. Thank you. I always find it curious to hear a Frenchman promote the value of free markets. <coughs> but nevertheless, thank you very much, uh, uh, Alexei. Uh, as expected, you have put forward a compelling case uh, against Jan's suggestions. Certainly there was nothing chicken about your stance or your presentation. Um, we now move to uh, brief uh, rebuttals. Um, were we to take a, uh, a vote from the arbitral community, probably we would find that many of you would be in favour of keeping the system of arbitral appointments, and Jan knows that very well. Probably it's not a proposal that's going to carry the day uh, any time soon. But what do we do in the meantime? Do we just ignore Jan's ideas, or are they ideas that we should seek to uh, adopt and um, uh, uh, take into account in some way in our practices? That's something for you to think about, Jan, and you might have some other points you wish to make in rebuttal. Perhaps I can weave it in. I'm very pleased that my learned friend has fixed his position, so I know what I'm shooting at. Makes it easier. Um, if things were as bad, five points. If things were as bad as I say, and the system were so immoral, it would have dis disintegrated already. Well, the fact of the matter is that in the international world we live in, there is no unified legal order. The world community has not been capable of establishing a system of obligatory jurisdiction throughout the world. It's a fact, and that's not going to change in our lifetime. Nor, secondly, has the world community been able to establish by treaty an allocation of judicial organization such, as, such that the horizontal quilt of a flat map indicates to everybody to, uh, which legal system he belongs to and which court is going to hear his case. The United States does not, does not have one single treaty for the enforcement of judgments. What we have is arbitration. It's a monopoly. It's there because it's there and there's nothing else. It's not necessarily there because it is so great. My perspective is the future. My perspective is what is going to work for the next 25 years. My, prop my proposition is that this is a system which has significant tensions, in which lawyers are becoming ever more sophisticated, are asking searching questions about the, legitim the legitimacy of tribunals. Every time you see a new proposal for stricter, stricter procedural rules in arbitration, it's a vote against the confidence in the inherent authority of the arbitrators. There is a lack of trust. And that is why we have this fury to legislate, to regulate in arbitration, because of a lack of trust. That tension will grow, so I do not subscribe to the idea that everything is fine. This is a monopoly. Monopolies have their weakness. 
secondly, uh, as a Swede, uh, it disturbs me to hear that I have resiled from any position. We're supposed to be extremely stubborn, stubborn people. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I understand that it's intelligent sometimes to resile from an extreme position, so I don't quite know what I should say here um, about having resiled from the proposition that unilateral appointments should be proscribed. Uh, let me put it this way. I think we should stop calling unilaterally appointed persons arbitrators in the full meaning of the word. In the United States, until very recently, there were two types of people engaged in, arbitration, in arbitral deliberations. There are parties, witnesses, lawyers, and then two types of people, one <coughs> called neutrals and one called non-neutrals. The unilaterally appointed persons were non-neutrals. As late as 1962, the leading commercial state in the United States, New York, enacted its federal rules, its state rules of procedure, providing that you could only challenge an arbitrator for bias if he or she was the neutral arbitrator, the presiding arbitrator. That was the ethos. That is not the ethos of the international community today. If you go into arbitration with that mindset, the hypocrisy is errant and obvious. My personal experience sitting, I've had four experiences of sitting with retired US federal judges. Federal judges are presidential appointees, tend to be outstanding scholars and lawyers. But when they retire and become arbitrators, they tend to be of a certain age, that this is the system they know. And when they are appointed by a party, I have had four, four uh, occasions, they have agreed with every argument made by the party that appointed them, including dissenting when that party's position was not adopted by the majority. And you can, you can read some of these dissents, which are very short. Uh, there is a full award, and then there is a dissent saying, I agree with the losing party on jurisdiction, liability, and quantum. Because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm a non-neutral. So let parties do what they wish. But let's avoid the hypocrisy. It has very bad effects on the perception of the legitimacy of the system. Third point, is this mere anecdotalism? If you Google Alexei Moore and Jan Paulson, you will immediately come upon a blog written by my learned friend uh, reacting to my Miami lecture, where he says, oh, oh, well, it's true that there are these occasional aberrations. And then he says, I'm reading here from his blogs, but such instances are limited. And such compromises, awards that are compromised because somebody is pulling in favor of his party, such compromises are generally reached on the allocation of costs, an area in which tribunals enjoy a fair level of discretion. So two propositions. Such instances are limited. And when they do occur, they generally have to do with the issues of cost. How does my learned friend know that? Has anybody made a study of this? This is pure assertion. How do we know the psychological workings of arbitral tribunals? He goes on. Paulson finally points to instances in which unscrupulous arbitrators offered iniquitous bargains in the tribunal's deliberations. But no general conclusion should be drawn from exceptional and highly reprehensible misconduct of that kind. 
How do we know that that's exceptional? Um, the anecdotalism argument doesn't work. Uh, you heard it in the first sentence of my opponent this evening who said, oh, well, that was very interesting, public international law and labor arbitration. I don't see what that has to do with commercial arbitration. Well, the anecdotes are numerous. Um, it is said from time to time by winged men, you know, I forget who appointed me. I don't believe it. I don't believe anybody has ever forgotten who appointed them. I think many people can rise above it. I think many people can decide against the party that appointed them. Uh, but the statistics about dissents, we'll get back to that in a moment. It's not a majority. It's every, well, the two studies we know about of the ICC awards, uh, it's not close to 95%. It's closer to 100% than to 95%. The dissenting opinion comes from the arbitrator who was named by the party that lost the case. So anecdotalism. Of course, you don't make generalizations from anecdotes. But if you consider the types of things that happen, it suffices to consider isolated incidents. Um, not so long ago, um, in an arbitral institution, the award was about to be sent out. And a challenge was raised against one of the arbitrators. Two years of arbitration. All has been said and done. The arbitrators are liberated. Now they're writing the award. Now comes the challenge. The challenge is that arbitrator X has violated the secrecy of deliberations. How? Well, the parties have gone through the arbitration, and they have a certain idea about how their case has been affected by the presentation of the case, and they're in settlement negotiations. And says the party, arbitrator X, appointed by my opponent, leaked the award. And the party that appointed him knows what was in the award, and that's why they took a certain very intelligent stance in the negotiation, because they knew exactly what the award was going to contain. How that could have been proved, think about it, how that could have been proved, I just don't know. But arbitrator X, when confronted with this accusation, said, what's the problem? Of course I did. I mean, I was appointed by Mr. Smith, my friend. And when we were finished, we'd signed the award. The award is signed. Mr. Smith is my friend. Why should he have to wait to get it through the post? I sent it to him. What's the problem? So he didn't understand what the problem was, but that was a problem. There's something called the secrecy of deliberations. And of course, it had a highly prejudicial effect. That arbitration had to start over again. A weird case, isn't it? Why is it weird? Because this was a very unsophisticated arbitrator. In most cases, you would never have known this. So similarly, the, the, the very sweet idea that this is all going to be cured by education, uh, organizations are going to spread the gospel about proper behavior, or disclosure, we have seen that disclosure fails. More disclosure ends up being counterproductive. So I may not sit as an arbitrator in a case if my law firm has worked for company X two years ago, $5,000 fee. Well, it seems a little, God, but we're very strict about these things. Well, the fact is that I might actually loathe this company because it's a major company and only $5,000, they should be punished. <laughs> Whereas company Y, with respect to whom my firm is an absolute virgin. Now that company Y, I would like to think well of me. Well, how is that ever going to be caught by disclosure? So the kinds of anecdotes one sees 
the point is not that this, that this gives statistically significant uh, 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 grounds for conclusions. A few of them suffice just to give you illustrations of how easy it is, how easy it is for sophisticated and unscrupulous parties to get away with it. And the more they see it, the higher the temptation is to go in that direction. Uh, the idea that parties are very attached to the, to, to the notion of being able to name an arbitrator unilaterally, I think is most questionable. Think about the conversation between a lawyer and his client negotiating an arbitration clause. I'm the lawyer, you're my client. I say to you, we're thinking about including an arbitration clause in our contract in case there is ever a dispute. How would you like it if I propose that we give up your right to name an arbitrator? What will you say? Are you out of your mind? I'm not giving up any rights. Let's start over. We're thinking about including an arbitration clause in your contract. What do you want if you have an arbitration? I want the contract to be enforced fairly and squarely. I want to be able to rely on the contract. Do you know that the other side can name absolutely whomever they wish as an arbitrator? Subject to certain controls, if you can prove that the arbitrator is unsuitable uh, by dint of finding out through disclosures or anything else. Well, I didn't know that. How does that work? Well, just think about it. If we have a dispute, uh, will the others, can you count on the other side to name somebody outstanding who will be absolutely neutral? Says, well, no, if we have a dispute, um, they're going to be my opponent and they want me to lose. So I don't know. They might appoint somebody very tricky and somebody very persuasive and somebody very unscrupulous and I don't know if I like that. So now my question to you is, well, how would you like if we could find a way that we could eliminate that possibility? Well, you might like the way that is put now and then I would say, by the way, in order to achieve that, of course, we have to give up the similar right and that will seem uh, like a small concession to give. If sincerely what you want is a fair shake from the arbitral tribunal. Fourth point, or I don't know if it's the fifth, um, going into the future, uh, recognizing that um, this um, discouragement of unilateral appointments, all I'm saying is, is, is that institutions should not encourage it and that we in the arbitration community should not accept that unilaterally appointed arbitrators are, are arbitrators like anybody else. Enough hypocrisy. Well, uh, that idea will not be accepted by a majority, I suppose, anytime soon. I started out all alone. Uh, now there are a few people who agree with me. Um, I, I, I recall that one of my most ardent opponents, one of the first times I, I, I said this, there was a whole room against me and the gentleman on the podium. Uh, he actually rang me some time ago and told me, uh, told me that his wife had been in the audience and she wasn't a lawyer, she's a social scientist. And when he came home, she, she talked him into the proposition that perhaps there was an idea in this, looking at it as an absolute outsider uh, to the process. Uh, just uh, mm, remember uh, two strange things. Who are people who in particular don't like my idea? 
One category will not surprise you, the other might. One category is the class of people who make their living as arbitrators and who therefore, by and large, two times more often, twice as more often, are in a position to be unilaterally appointed nominees as they are likely to be presiding arbitrators named by both sides or by the institution. Um, this is something which they don't like very much, and they don't see anything wrong when they sit as unilaterally appointed nominees, as my opponent and I often have and, and often do, and no doubt will for some time to come. Um, so they are definitely the opponents of this idea, and you should bear in mind uh, their, particular, their particular situation when you, when you listen to them. But the more surprising uh, people who don't like this uh, idea are arbitral institutions. Arbitral institutions tend not to like this idea. They would prefer that the parties fulfill this task themselves. And if they can't do it jointly, let them do it unilaterally, because it's a heavy responsibility for the institutions to carry out. There is one argument which I cannot answer. I say, if you, the two parties, cannot agree to who the arbitral tribunal should be, all of them, then the institution should name all the arbitrators. If somebody looks me in the eye and say, I will never do that because I don't trust the institutions, I have no answer. I cannot say you should trust. If you don't trust, you don't trust. But what a searing indictment that is of arbitral institutions. What a terrible thing that institutions cannot convince parties of this. I don't think it is always true, and I think there are great differences in institutions. There's where the challenge lies. There, I believe, in the, those institutions that are able to convince the arbitrants, potential arbitrants, of the legitimacy of their process. They can show how arbitrators are, are, are named and removed. Uh, they can show how recruitment is made. They can explain the decision-making process within the institutions with a great deal of transparency. They can prove that there is no entrenchment in sociological terms of their institutional decision-making process. Those institutions will cause people to be very relaxed about the proposition that the, arbitrator, that the arbitrators are named by the institution and thereby in one stroke eliminate the moral hazard of unilateral appointees. Thank you, Jan. Jan, we're not finished with you yet. There will be questions to follow, and uh, Alexi, the same um, <coughs> word of warning goes to you. Uh, but now we hear uh, Alexi uh, in rebuttal. Thank you, Stephen. I, I will try to take on the five points made by, by Jan in ten minutes. Uh, first point, uh, arbitration is a monopoly. I don't think that's quite accurate. I think in the modern world, arbitration, arbitration institu institution compete one with another. Arbitration competes with court litigation. I think courts are getting more and more efficient. And I think that companies, uh, when they decide to include in their contracts an arbitration agreement, they uh, think in terms of advantages and disadvantages of going to court or going to arbitration. Uh, of course, arbitration has an advantage that courts will never have, that is neutrality of the system. But that may not, in all circumstances, be an overriding consideration. I think 
cost uh, comes uh, into uh, into play, uh, delays come into play, uh, uh, the fairness of the process come into play. So I believe that in the modern world, uh, arbitration and quantification compete one with another. And the reason why arbitration uh, is so incredibly successful and has become uh, the normal way of resolving uh, international commercial disputes is because it is perceived, I think, rightly by the users as providing not only an efficient but also a fair way of resolving their disputes. And I still believe that if uh, the situation was as bleak as Yan has painted it, uh, we would have uh, had uh, backfire uh, 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 much uh, uh, since many, many years, and that has not occurred. If you, if you listen at the criticism to arbitration, the criticism never, uh, or almost never, uh, is on uh, the poor quality of awards made by party-appointed uh, arbitrators. It is about cost. It is about delays. Uh, the users do not uh, question uh, the uh, practice of uh, unilateral uh, appointments. The second point is, uh, and I think that goes to the, to the root of what Jens tells us today, uh, and I've been uh, quite uh, uh, stricken by hearing him saying party appointed arbitrators are not arbitrators like uh, other arbitrators. Uh, basically what Jens says is party appointed arbitrators are not really arbitrators. And by saying this, I think Yan uh, goes back to, uh, uh, in fact, the US uh, 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 misconception of, uh, which is now, I think, which has now been uh, overcome, of uh, the practice of non-neutral arbitrators. Uh, uh, that was years ago. Uh, I think that Yan's proposition rests fundamentally on the premise which was that of uh, the US practice of non-neutral arbitrators. Party-appointed arbitrators would be incapable of exercising independent judgment because they have been appointed by a party. And because they have been appointed by a party, they would uh, necessarily uh, uh, aim at defending the party who appointed them in the tribunal. I think this proposition uh, rests on nothing. It rests on no evidence. Uh, as I said, there is, I will come back to the question of anecdotal evidence. I think uh, the uh, overwhelming experience of all of us in arbitrary tribunal is that most of the time, in the great majority of cases, uh, party-appointed arbitrators uh, have behaved impartially. Uh, now, uh, anecdotal evidence. Uh, what Jan says, I understand, is, well, uh, my proposition may be based on anecdotal evidence, but your, your rebuttal is also based on anecdotal evidence at best, because we don't know. How do we know uh, if uh, an arbitrator, uh, and in particular if the arbitrator is an experienced and, uh, 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 and clever uh, arbitrator, how do we know that that arbitrator did not behave improperly? How do we know that that arbitrator did not uh, uh, call uh, his appointed party to inform him of what is going on in the deliberation? Well, uh, I would say two things. First of all, assuming we don't know, I don't believe that not knowing is sufficient to uh, uh, justify a general suspicion on all party appointed 
arbitrators. Right? That is a method that I'm not prepared to buy. If we don't know, I think the presumption should be uh, that party-appointed arbitrators behave impartially. But the fact is that I think we do know. Uh, uh, Yan asked, how do you know? I think we do know. Uh, nowadays, uh, the press in arbitration has become an important phenomenon. I think the gossips have become, for good or for bad, an important phenomenon. I think people talk, and people talk probably more than they should. Uh, uh, and they uh, tell to other arbitrators, to uh, their friends, uh, to other people, for very tough reasons, what happens. And I think that uh, greatly improper behaviors, like the one Jan mentioned of that arbitrator sending uh, uh, the draft award to his appointing party, those things nowadays are known more and more. I think the idea that arbitration is a secret word where no one knows uh, what happens behind the curtains of arbitration tribunal, that idea is gone. More and more things are known, and if an arbitrator behaves uh, in uh, uh, a greatly improper manner, uh, this, I think, more and more will be known, or at least the idea that it will not be known uh, is misconceived. There is uh, a, a great uh, probability that ultimately this will be known. And what the end proposes today is just would be just like saying, well, given that there is there are some cases of corruption uh, in uh, uh, international commerce, uh, we should ban international commerce. Let's uh, just uh, uh, go back to, uh, uh, to Soviet Union. Well, basically, Soviet Union was, was a very corrupt society, but no, no international commerce. If you have no international commerce, then you have no corruption, probably. Uh, and that would be uh, to verify. But I think that's the kind of logics which I, I fundamentally um, disagree uh, with. Now, uh, two, two points uh, before I, I finish. Uh, corporate counsel. I think Jan uh, uh, probably contradicted himself when he said two things. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, he uh, invented that conversation with, uh, between uh, a counsel and his client, uh, where the client says, well, uh, uh, are you uh, uh, prepared to give up your right uh, to appoint an arbitrator? No, but would you be prepared to give up that right if uh, the other party also uh, uh, would do so? And then uh, the answer is, is nicely yes. And, and then minutes after, uh, Jan uh, acknowledged that there is one question to which he cannot give an answer, and that is, what if the client says, well, I don't trust the institution? And that's one of the important points in this debate. And I think that one of the reasons, basically two reasons why uh, the client, the counsel, the user, will say, well, I prefer to appoint my arbitrator, and I prefer to select an institution which would permit me to do so. Well, the first reason is, as I said before, a sense of participation in the process. And I believe that users and companies are genuinely interested in that. And the second is that uh, the company is likely to say, well, I, I don't really trust the institution to make that appointment. I will not give uh, examples uh, of institutions uh, because there is a variety of, of, of different scenarios. But very frequently, there is not enough transparency. Uh, in the way institutions appoint their arbitrator. And the client is likely to say, well, I would prefer that the two party appointed arbitrator get together and uh, uh, put in place uh, uh, a framework for uh, the appointment of the chairman. You can have lists, you can have in 
in consultation with us. And that is what happens in practice, and I believe that parties are uh, very, very uh, willing to uh, keep that. Now, the last point is uh, politics, uh, institution politics. Institutions are uh, bodies. Uh, uh, they can be very diverse. They are chamber of commerce. Uh, they, are, uh, uh, they can be uh, uh, organs like the LCIA. Uh, they have some very good institutions. There are some uh, less good institutions. I think the problem is uh, what would happen if we would generalize uh, uh, institutional appointments and not ban, because I understand that Yen has backstage from that proposal, but uh, uh, reduce to a significant extent uh, the appointment of arbitrators by party. I think we would have a situation where uh, we would have bodies of almost permanent uh, institutional arbitrators. It's very interesting. I've read by coming here the uh, recent communication from the EU Commission on international investment policy. And there, there are some interesting things in that. Uh, the EU Commission uh, acknowledges that uh, investor state arbitration is something that probably cannot uh, be uh, done without. So uh, we need to keep that. But what do they say? Atomization of disputes and interpretation. Consistency and predictability are key issues and the use of quasi-permanent arbitrators as in, as in the EU's FTA practice and or appellate mechanism uh, is recommended by the EU. So what would we have? We would have a politicization of arbitration. But, and we would have, uh, on the scenario of commercial arbitration, a situation where I think we would see a community of arbitrators which would be more distant uh, with respect to uh, the community of users. Uh, we would have the development of a culture of, a sort of a culture of arbitral civil servants, or maybe of arbitral politicians. People, arbitrators, would get their appointments to institutions. They wouldn't care about uh, their uh, standing on the market of arbitration. What would be important is their links with the particular people who run uh, institutions, and I do not believe that uh, the best arbitrators would necessarily uh, uh, be uh, on the market. Thank you. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for that um, <coughs> intriguing debate. Uh, now is the time that we uh, have to put some questions to Jan and uh, Alexei. Um, I would encourage anyone with questions to be forthright in putting their questions. Um, I believe that there are two uh, microphones in the audience. Perhaps while you think about questions that you might wish to ask, uh, I might um, pick up uh, on something that has troubled me about much of this de debate. And it's a question for Jan. Um, it's well understood that the um, party-appointed arbitrator carries uh, an acceptable burden that may be different from their fellow party-appointed arbitrator. And that is to ensure that the case for the party that has appointed them is at least properly understood by the tribunal. My concern, Jan, is that if we live in a world or move into a world where we dispense with party-appointed arbitrators, how do we replace that system of control? How do we, how do we ensure that um, the tribunal 
does take proper steps to come to grips with the position as advanced by both parties. This is often said that the particular and acceptable role of a unilateral nominee of a party is that that arbitrator has this particular responsibility to ensure that that party's thesis, theses, are understood inside the tribunal. Utter nonsense. Every arbitrator undertakes to consider the arguments of both parties fully and with the depth that's, that's requisite. I've never understood this position. Is there not a problem, Jan, with uh, groupthink taking over, whereby uh, two or more of the arbitrators seem to be of a view, the third is inclined to go along because it seems right, but without any of them rigorously testing that position or making sure that they have fully understood the arguments of the parties? If that were so, I guess we'd have groupthink in national tribunals, and this country certainly shows that that isn't so. Alexei, do you have any response to that? Well, I, I think I agree with Jan on the proposition that all, no, I don't think I'm, I'm sure with Jan on that, all arbitrators have uh, the same duty to ensure that the arbitrator will fully understand understands the case uh, of, of both parties. I, I, I think that's, that's absolutely true. Um, what I believe is a, a little more on the second degree, and, and that's the following. I think a party-appointed arbitrator feels more compelled uh, uh, to make sure that the award will be a good award, and uh, an award which will be understood. Even if the party who appointed him will lose in all the parties' case, I think that party-appointed arbitrator will uh, want to ensure that that party fully understands why it lost the case. If it wins the case, probably doesn't need to understand and be happy anyway. But if it loses the case, I think it's very important that that party understands fully why it lost the case. And I think there is there maybe a more uh, proactive role of a party-appointed arbitrator than an institution-appointed arbitrator, which might be more distant. It doesn't care very much about what the corporate council thinks in the end. What, what he cares about is what the institution thinks. We have the mic to the gentleman by the exit, please. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, my, my name is Hartwell. Uh, I'm an engineer. And one of the things which I wanted to say, say really, to in ways that contradict what Jan has been saying, is quite simply that one of the vehicles for new people to come into the arbitral role is in fact for them to be appointed as party appointed arbitrators. It's also very often, I think, in my own experience and speaking to other people, it's very often the case that the specialist in, for example, technology um, is very often introduced into the arbitral tribunal that way. And I've often found myself working with, with two lawyers. And that was one very good reason for using the party appointing system. But uh, another which concerns me greatly is that this whole process belongs to the parties. It doesn't belong to the institutions. 
it doesn't belong to the cadre of generally professional arbitrators, it actually belongs to the parties themselves. And if they don't have a choice in the structure of the tribunal which is going to hear their case, then they won't have arbitration. It's as simple as that. Thank you. Would either of you like to respond to uh, Jeffrey's remarks? Well, I, th I think it was directed uh, uh, to me in the sense that, well, it was directed to me. Um, the, um, uh, the notion that untried arbitrators are more easily introduced into the practice of arbitration by unilateral nominations uh, remains to be seen. Uh, if I, I, th I think I said it uh, early on, uh, that in the practice of the LCIA, when the LCIA has the uh, opportunity of naming all three arbitrators, that is an excellent occasion to be able to name one of the arbitrators who is, uh, who is not experienced, which would not happen if the institution had the role of appointing only one arbitrator to sit in the chair. Similarly, the technically experienced specialist who is suitable for the case is more likely to be, name, to, to be named by the institution uh, than by the parties. That seems slightly odd, uh, but if you think about the fact that the parties con con are concerned only about winning, uh, you will have situations where one party wants the case to turn on a legal proposition and will therefore name the great expert on fraud in the inducement or the obligation to inform oneself of hidden defects, uh, whereas the other party considers that it's a technical dispute and therefore names uh, an, uh, an arbitrator who, who, who is technically expert. Uh, well, if, depending on which way it goes, uh, one side or the other is, is, is wants that aspect of the case to be predominant, uh, if the institution names sees that there are those issues involved and names absolutely neutral arbitrators to each of those positions because uh, both are required in the case, I think one can sleep uh, easier. I think each of our uh, debaters has spoke disparagingly of the use of anecdote and therefore will speak disparagingly of my anecdote, but um, or my anecdotal evidence, which is actually that Jeffrey, in response to your remark, um, most parties are actually reluctant to appoint, in their own case, someone who is not an experienced arbitrator. Um, not only do they want someone who's familiar with the territory, but they want someone who will stand up to the co-arbitrator of their opposition, who can't be relied upon themselves to be a novice. And they will want someone who will cut some sway with the, with the uh, chairperson to be appointed. Uh, it's been my experience, as, as Jan points out, that one is more likely to find the younger arbitrators appear in cases where the appointments have been made by um, uh, institutions or appointing authorities. Sorry, the mic is on its way down. John Rushton, ICC United Kingdom. Uh, this isn't an anecdote, this is a fact. Of the 80-odd um, uh, proposals put by the UK since I've done this job, 55, or 50, 55 to 60 different arbitrators have been used, and of the 55 to 60 in the UK, 11 have done their first arbitration. I suspect 
that that is a relatively high percentage, one in five, is unlikely to be doing his first arbitration, if I may put it this way, outside uh, the institution. So I, I, I support Jan Paulson on that point. But can I raise a perhaps legalistic point? And that is if I'm right, and I've left my ICC rules under my pillow, so I haven't got them with me. But I think I'm right in saying that the parties can appoint arbitrators, but the ICC court confirms the appointment. So ultimately, the ICC, at least, actually does control, if it wishes to do so, who is going to be an arbitrator in one of their cases, because it can decline to confirm the appointment. I don't know how often it does decline, and I don't know if anybody does know in this room how often it does decline, but at the moment, in fact, we don't have unilateral appointed arbitrators, at least in the context of ICC arbitration. Do you have a comment? We have two vice presidents of the ICC court uh, with us. Maybe they can at least... Well, I, I, I think you're right. The ICC uh, confirms uh, arbitrators which have been nominated by the parties. Uh, it is quite rare in my experience that uh, the ICC will not confirm an arbitrator appointed by the party unless, of course, there is a, an objection based on disclosure. Uh, but that, that has uh, uh, happened. Uh, I've seen that at least uh, once, uh, an arbitrator, which uh, uh, we found in the court to be uh, uh, extremely busy. And I've actually, I've seen that twice. Uh, first case, an arbitrator which was uh, had too many cases. You know that now the ICC uh, requires uh, uh, prospective arbitrators to disclose a number of cases they have ongoing, uh, and we felt in the court that uh, that particular arbitrator had too many cases and was not confirmed. Uh, the other case is an arbitrator who had disclosed that uh, uh, he would uh, uh, leave on sabbatical for six months, uh, and so uh, the chairman of the court called that arbitrator and asked him whether uh, what would happen if uh, uh, there would be uh, some sort of urgent matter like uh, an interim relief application, and, and, and the arbitrator was not confirmed yet. Um, that, that happens quite rare that, that happens. A few years ago, there was a skein of cases coming out of India where arbitrations conducted outside India uh, were marred by injunctions against Indian arbitrators participating in the arbitration. So they then, subject to contempt of court, naturally refused to, to go on. They were therefore not able to fulfill their mission as arbitrator. They were therefore ultimately removed by the ICC court. Upon their, um, upon their removal, the party that originally nominated them has the opportunity to nominate their, uh, uh, their successors. And the ICC there rather robustly in that sequence of cases, which I think as a result stopped, uh, informed that party that you now have the, the opportunity to name a replacement arbitrator. But if, uh, your, uh, uh, if your nomination is somebody who will be subject to this uh, impediment to fulfilling its function, uh, it will not be confirmed by the court. But I think the more important point is that the ICC or the LCIA, which has the same position of, of, of ultimately being able to reject a nomination by a party for cause, it has to be for cause, based on information. Uh, in the difficult cases, in many cases, there is no information. And so what does the institution know about the nominee from Montevideo? or Ulaanbaatar. There is no basis to reject that nominee. And that's exactly why we should privilege party appointed party appointments, because the institution doesn't know. The parties do know. Yes, sir. Uh, if you could wait one moment, you'll have a microphone. Thank you. Sorry, Hermes Morangos. I'm, I'm a lawyer. Um, and I was wondering whether, because we've been facing this problem for a number of years, and, and whether it's an issue of how you approach it. 
And uh, last time we had a debate with other colleagues and arbitrators, the issue that arose was, well, what is it they're trying to achieve? And interestingly, some brilliant arbitrators and lawyers and said, who said, well, quite frankly, if what you're trying to do is to win, then you do want to have a structure whereby it's difficult to get the right people as arbitrators because you want to win. Um, and therefore, I, I support Jan's view because if you say the role of the arbitration, the, the arbitral tribunal, is to get to the right solution, you want a structure that gets you to that. One of the basic problems we had uh, recently is that you have a number of experts who may not be able to get onto the tribunals because if you think about it, they will be working either whether it's engineering or reinsurance uh, as lawyers or experts whereby they will have a number of clients. Uh, the ethical rules mean that they take conflicts very seriously and they may find themselves working with a particular client. That in itself means that those experts and people who work within ethical rules may not get appointed as arbitrators. And therefore, you don't have the experts dealing with, the arbit with, with arbitrations. And we have seen the Lloyds of London engineering issues with the LCIA, whereby a number of arbitrations came to the wrong conclusion and had an impact uh, on, uh, on, 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 on economic activity. Um, now, one thing I, I like to add, I've just come back from uh, Brazil, and we have an amazingly difficult situation to deal with right now because a uh, uh, supreme, well, somebody who is a jurist and even a very, very, very important position uh, took a position on an issue as a party-appointed arbitrator style. And what he has done is to cast doubt as to what the law is where the law is actually quite clear. And therefore, uh, from my perspective, I think the question is, do you believe uh, a, a, a structure, a body is the best way to get to the right result in an arbitration or do you believe it's via uh, unilateral appointments? And I think that's the way they would approach it if you believe that an arbitration should get to the right solution as you would expect uh, a, 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 a high court uh, a trial uh, to reach to. And to say, well, I think I want what is a structure which favors my clients well, then that takes it away from being an ar arbitrator to being an advocate. So I think we need to decide, am I an advocate uh, for somebody's position and win, come what may? Or uh, am I part of the judicial or the tribunal body? I don't, I don't think any of our debaters are suggesting that the role of the arbitrator, party appointed or otherwise, is ever to be uh, that of an advocate. But I'm, gl I'm glad you raised the point because it touches upon uh, a concern that uh, I too had with uh, one of Jan's arguments, where he asked us to imagine the discussion, you will recall, between a, <coughs> a lawyer and their client, where the lawyer says to the client, well, what do you want? And Jan posited that the response is likely to be, I want the tribunal to enforce the contract fairly and squarely. Well, Jan, not everyone has a good case. Um, and I don't want those of my opponent, counsel in this room, to draw any conclusions about any ongoing matters. But uh, some cases require a little help. Some cases uh, don't uh, uh, have clients who want the contract to be enforced fairly and squarely. Sometimes you want a little bit of help from an arbitrator who might, for example, be more interested in principles of good faith and evidence that might not otherwise be admissible in a given legal system, that sort of thing. In those circumstances, 
other parties not actually giving up an awful lot when they give up their, their right to appoint their own arbitrator. No, but my imaginary conversation was occurring at a time when both parties are angels. Uh, there is no dispute. They haven't become rascals. Uh, and so that, it's as simple as that. Three bullet points. Uh, my argument is, is more difficult to make in certain venues. I will say this without uh, wishing to flatter anybody. Um, it's more difficult to make in places where there is an, an independent bar. And I will readily say that in London is the place where I have seen the most unusual uh, succession of arbitrators who are appointed by a party. And I, I'm almost tempted to believe that they've forgotten it. Uh, and, and they, the, but then they will say things like, Oh boy, if we go down this if we go down this route, Alan and Obi will never appoint me again. So they don't quite forget it, but they're perfectly willing to over they're perfectly able to overcome it because of their independence. Second bullet point: uh, It has been said by uh, an eminent specialist of international arbitration on many, many occasions. The following sentence, when describing what one does when one names unilaterally an arbitrator, one seeks the maximum appearance of impartiality and the maximum favoring of one's case. That is one Martin Hunter. I've heard him say it so many times in public that I don't hesitate to repeat it. Um, finally, third bullet point, um, I said that people who make their living as arbitrators don't very much like my argument because they see sort of mathematically two-thirds of their opportunities of being appointed vanish, but there actually is a class of arbitrators who have nil chance of being appointed unless it is unilateral appointments. What is that all about? Yes, the gentleman uh, with his hand raised. If you could keep it raised. Thank you. As Adam Samuel, as so often <laughs> with these situations, really both talking about two different things. Um, or rather, Jan is talking about a different thing to Geoffrey. Geoffrey uh, Beresford Hartwell, the gentleman who asked the question to my left, um, comes from a world of consensual arbitration, where parties of roughly, broadly even bargaining power, um, it, who belong to a community, in his case of engineering construction, but in where I was trained in the shipping world, actually agree to arbitrate on the basis of shared consensual feelings about not the contract but the dispute and how it is to be managed. And in that environment, Jeffrey's point about the expert being appointed by the party is indeed valid and very common, precisely because the parties themselves want an expert tribunal and have a clear consensual idea about it. There is a completely different world out there where the parties are inherently always, if there is a dispute, going to be in conflict about that resolution of the dispute. And that's really what Jan Paulsen is really talking about, uh, which is a different animal altogether, where typically, often, but not always, bargaining powers are quite different. I mean, nobody's mentioned consumer dispute resolution, by the way. And in that situation, you have no choice. You have to have an institution, or the whole system is deeply unfair. Um, and where you have um, disputes between parties from vastly different 
dispute resolution cultures, then the party appointed arbitrator starts to become a serious problem. Uh, I was only yesterday reviewing the Charter Institute of Arbitrators guideline on interviewing arbitrators, which is a good enough reminder um, that different people have completely different values about how they approach these problems. And where there is an absence of value system, there has to be a very strong argument for the institutions um, taking the Jan Paulsen view, if you like. And indeed, it happens all the time. To take a, a common example, WIPO domain name dispute resolution, or indeed ICANN dispute, dispute resolution, where there is virtually no party autonomy uh, in terms of um, indeed even possession of the process. And there can't be because you're typically dealing with one-man bands against major corporations. It wouldn't be fair and it wouldn't work. So you're really just talking about two different things altogether. One system might be better in one situation, another in another. Thank you, Adam. We're running short of time, but there's a gentleman up here with a, a, a question. Then we can take one more from the front row. So we'll just have the microphone passed along to you. Thank you. Uh, David Garth-Roger from uh, the OECD. Uh, I just have a question. I'm interested. It's been remarked on Jan Paulson's relatively solitary campaign at this, at this stage. But what I'm interested in is how the LCIA got to its default rule, which would seem to largely reflect uh, uh, a Jan Paulson view, uh, in the sense that it does seem to be somewhat, obviously it leaves the parties the freedom to contract out of uh, institutional appointments. But if that's the default rule, it seems like it's moving fairly far down, down your path. I'm also interested, is there any analysis in terms of whether um, since that rule has been adopted, whether there's an increased acceptance of the institutional appointments? In other words, has there been any trend over time at the LCIA uh, in terms of whether parties are beginning to accept more the default rule as they see it, they see it occur? And one final one, if there's time, just there were glancing references to investor state arbitration. Uh, and I'd be interested in, in your views on how, if your views differ in any ways on the, uh, whether it is a good idea or not to have unilaterally appointed arbitrators in the investor state context. I'll take the first two, and Alexi can take the third. Uh, your first question, um, guess who drafted the article? Uh, the second. Uh, the second question, uh, I, don't think, uh, I don't think one can say that um, uh, there is evidence of, of, of party acceptance. I, if one were able to go back in time with the machine and, 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 and ask the parties what they were doing when they were negotiating clauses, when they failed to opt out of the default rule, uh, or when they did opt out of the default rule, uh, were they conscious of what they were doing, or was somebody simply cutting and pasting uh, some sub-paragraph of the arbitration clause which said something about each party shall name their arbitrator without even thinking about the fact that they were modifying the default rule? Uh, I just don't know. I think what would be interesting is to see two things. First of all, whether there is some convincingly objective way to um, assess the, difference, the different path through the process of arbitrations under one regime or the other. Uh, I think that can be shown, but will the, will the results be significant or not? And secondly, how the parties perceive this, the satisfactory 
nature of the process in, 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 in comparative terms. But uh, that has yet to be done, but we're, uh, we're, we're, we're trying to get a study at, at the LSE, in fact, to, to determine just this. Yes, well, very briefly on that, uh, I think, as I said, each institution competes uh, uh, on different products. We, we have been discuss discussing uh, in the ICC uh, on whether uh, the current rules should change. Uh, the ICC has a rule where uh, uh, parties appoint their arbitrator and the chairman is appointed by the court unless the parties agreed otherwise. And there has been a discussion on whether that rule should be generalized to all arbitrators, which basically uh, uh, amount to applying uh, an LCIA kind uh, uh, of, of rule uh, in the ICC context and the overwhelming uh, answer in, in the ICC Arbitration Commission and Task Force on the revision of the ICC uh, Rules of Arbitration, which is an ongoing process, has been no. Uh, uh, the users uh, want to have uh, uh, the opportunity to appoint the arbitrators. Uh, on the question of investor state arbitration, uh, I think even more. Uh, this is a context where uh, it is, uh, I think, even more important to maintain the principle. Investor state arbitration is based on uh, the procedures of uh, international uh, uh, private arbitration. This is the way it has worked uh, for uh, decades, and I think this is uh, uh, the way it manages to ensure in a fair and neutral and non-politicized manner uh, the solution of disputes between investors and states. I think if we would have a situation where uh, 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 we, would create, we would create a body of professional uh, uh, arbitrators, uh, uh, that would inevitably, inevitably lead to a, a politicization of, of the system, and that would be bad, I think. Just before the last question, and as the, the, the issue was raised about statistics, um, Alexei did tell us uh, in his first presentation that the LCIA statistics show that uh, just over 50% of parties um, agree to appoint their own arbitrators uh, in variation of the, the default rule. And he puts that forward. And Alexei, I'll put it to you that uh, it's interesting you put it forward as evidence that that the parties um, are not accepting of the default rule. But I think the far more interesting statistic, Alexei, is that um, substantially more than 40% choose not to and seem to be happy with it. And um, one might be disparaging of anecdotal um, um, observations. But all of the anecdotal observations we have that criticize the system arise out of cases where the parties have appointed the arbitrators. There are very few that arise, of any, uh, out of circumstances where the arbitrators have all been appointed by an institution or a third party. Does that not undermine your position somewhat? I don't think so. Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, again, we are reasoning on the basis of uh, anecdotes. Uh, what is the problem? The problem is uh, cases uh, where uh, it appears, I think exceptionally, that an arbitrator appointed by a party uh, uh, favors in a way or another, more or less improperly, uh, uh, the party who has appointed uh, him. Uh, that, of course, cannot happen in, uh, uh, if the arbitrator has been appointed by an institution. An, an, an arbitrator appointed by an institution has no reason whatsoever to favor uh, one party uh, unless in uh, uh, exceptional circumstances, which I cannot imagine. But uh, an institution appointed arbitrator, arbitrator had no reason to do that. I, I think the problem is that we are reasoning on anecdotal evidence of misbehavior by party-appointed arbitrator. The case I make is that these 
uh, anecdotal evidence is insufficient to cast suspicion on uh, uh, the whole population of uh, uh, arbitrators who uh, most of the times are appointed by, by the parties. We have one final question from the lady in the front row. Could you pass the microphone, please? Thank you. Thank you. My name is Liliana Rodriguez. I would like to ask you about neutrality. Um, I am, I am well, just uh, thinking about this debate and thinking whether uh, the real issue is more on the quality of the individuals that are that are uh, members of the tribunal. And um, I would like to know uh, in a case where it's found that uh, one of the members is not behaving in a proper way, uh, what steps could be taken by the institutions uh, in order uh, to avoid this kind of situations? And what what would happen if uh, well uh, if is uh, an arbitrator that has been uh, uh, well accepted by uh, the parties in the arbitration? Can I um, remark that probably the same systems for removal of arbitrators uh, for the variety of reasons that one might want to remove an arbitrator? would not be affected by whether the arbitrator was appointed um, by a party or by an institution. And it's a, it's a fascinating uh, issue and debate, but that part is probably for another day. But I'm intrigued by your question insofar as it relates to the importance of neutrality. Do either of our debaters think that um, the importance of neutrality is in any, any way affected or undermined by the different methods of appointing arbitrators? Well, the unilateral, unilaterally appointed arbitrator, uh, if he or she is a, an urbane and sophisticated person who lives by an operational code uh, of it being understood that the co-arbitrators are not neutral, it will be extraordinarily difficult to prove that that person is not neutral. And so, therefore, even though you apply the same systems, allegedly, to police them, it is almost impossible to do that uh, without another arbitrator saying, this is what I observed. And that observation is very subjective, and most arbitrators would not want to go there and, and, and become involved with, with a fight with another arbitrator. And that is, and I insist, uh, Stephen, you've mentioned that uh, aspersions have been made against anecdotes. Anecdotes are fine. I mean, anecdotes are facts unless they're fabricated. And anecdotes is what we have. Anecdotes are very strong in this area because all you need is to hear of a number of instances which are not fabricated. You need to know that they're not lies. These are the, uh, things that have that happened. For you to see how easy it can be to abuse the system by all kinds of clientelist behavior of arbitrators. And I'm afraid that I am convinced that it happens quite frequently. And in other countries, you hear senior arbitrators saying, not long ago, I have never met an impartial arbitrator nominated by a party. It seems to be wrong. And in many places, I think that is the culture. And it's not a good thing for international arbitration, whether it should be one rule for all. Alex, if you wish. 
Well, ju just one minute. <laughs> I, I think it's a matter of culture, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, Jan said a minute ago that uh, in London uh, you have a culture of arbitration where uh, most uh, or many uh, party appointed arbitrators behave in a perfectly impartial manner. I, I would tend to believe uh, that uh, the same could be said of Paris, uh, of Geneva. Uh, those are uh, capitals of uh, arbitration. Uh, you might have, as Jan just said, jurisdictions uh, maybe less developed in terms of arbitrary culture, where you still have the conception that party-appointed arbitrators should act as advocates. Uh, of their party. I can talk about one country which I know very well. In Italy, this is uh, a quite a widespread uh, idea uh, 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 still now. I think it is a matter of culture. I think uh, what we should aim to do is to develop the culture of arbitration, to make uh, and the parties better understand what an arbitrator is, and that is a judge, uh, instead of uh, casting dubs, I think, in an unjust and unfair manner on uh, uh, the arbitration community. I have a very simple way of avoiding these insidious and politically incorrect comparisons. <laughs> Go on, Jan. <laughs> That's my proposal. That's his theory. <laughs> well, look, um, Jan has plainly carried the burden this evening, uh, for it is he who challenges uh, conventional thinking. Uh, but he has certainly done so powerfully, uh, including his last remark. Uh, but also uh, with remarks such as the unilateral appointment of arbitrators is a lamentable expedient that we would do well to jettison. Let us end the hypocrisy. Let us stop calling unilaterally appointed ar persons arbitrators. All very powerful stuff. But they both accuse each other of the deployment of mere anecdote. But as Jan says, anecdotes are fact unless false. Uh, but what we don't know about these anecdotes is whether they are interesting and they are told because they are representative of conduct or because they are striking for not being so. Jan responds, let's do some study. Let's carry out some empirical research to see what is actually going on. That must surely be the answer. Let's stop talking in what we imagine and what we base to be uh, the generality based on our own experience. I think some research is definitely called for. And uh, if I'm right to understand you, the, the LEC might be about to embark upon such a project. And if that is the case, then it is to be um, commended. Um, <clears throat> of course, this is all about trust. Jan opened with trust. It's trust in the system. If we are to shift trust from our appointed arbitrator, uh, we must move it to the institutions or the third parties that are appointing arbitrators. Jan doesn't have the answer if there's an absence of trust, uh, but certainly the institutions must find those answers. I submit that certain of the institutions, certainly the ICC and the LCIA, but almost certainly many of the other more recognized institutions, are actually doing rather well. And I think we can say they're doing rather well because in the substantial majority of cases, if not all of them, where the institution proceeds to appoint all of the arbitrators, we don't have many of the problems that Jan has so skillfully identified that arise in cases of party-appointed arbitrators. So thank you, gentlemen, both for your uh, stimulating contribution and your debate. Uh, may we all thank them in the usual way.
you too must be congratulated for bearing with us, even though we've run uh, over time, but also for your attention and your contribution. But finally, I'd like to thank the LSE for um, hosting this debate and indeed the other events uh, of a similar nature, all of which are educational and inspiring and very interesting, and we're better off for them. Thank you very much to the LSE.